Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. And welcome back to X is for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it continues. We are not in the 80s anymore, ladies and gentlemen. We are in the fucking future. How far in the future, you ask? Maybe we're in the past. Maybe we're in the present. Maybe we're a hundred years in the future. Maybe we're a thousand years. Evidently, we're time traveling. Welcome to an Uncanny X is for Podcast special event, Powerhouse, where we take a look at the House of X and Powers of Ten X-Men relaunch under the pen of Jonathan Hickman, bringing the X-Men forward for the first time in quite some time. With me as always, the man I could not talk about the X-Men without is the incredible, the brilliant Jonah. Hello everyone, I just stepped through a Krakoa portal. Well, it's great to see you, Cardinal. And of course, there would be no way to discuss the X-Men and their precious House of X without bringing in the man who coined the phrase himself, Warpath Dylan. I don't have anything witty to say, so hi. You know what, last time we were all together, everybody started saying hi in foreign languages, and that was super fun to edit, so I'll take the straightforward. And, bringing up the rear, although he is certainly not to hide in the back, we have the amazing, the muscular, the super cool, Kyle. You can't get rid of me. Evidently I can't, which is super fine by me. Today we're going to talk about House of X number one. This thing fucked my brain up hard. I needed to talk about these right away. Initially, I was going to wait till everything was over and then talk about it. And then I was going to wait for the hardcover and then talk about it. I was going to wait to just hang out with my friends and talk. No, this was so much material and so much of it was so fascinating and so incredible. I really wanted to bring together my best team to talk about what's going on here. I found the most astonishing, uncanny, adjectiveless people I could find and I caught them together to talk a little bit about this X-Men comic that's changing everything. We have a number of readers with different years of comic experience, ranging from two years reading comics and roughly 10 years of the X-Men read to reading comics for 25 years with nearly every page read. And it's that breadth and birth of experience that gives us the opportunity to take a look at these comics from all sorts of different angles and find out what it is that made House of X number one so bad bafflingly good and hard to put down. And for me, that starts on page one. Humans of the planet Earth, while you slept, the world changed. And I don't want to just go on and on about how much I love Hickman's style and his sense of design, but if you take a look, all of the little letters around the symbols that are used to indicate language, it's little things like breaking up the word Krakoa or saying Xavier Alpha. And I wind up questioning a number of what those are, if for no other reason, they frequently provide information 
location. Later on, the map of Krakoa says that Krakoa Pacific is smaller than Krakoa Total. So there's so much hidden in the production of this issue. I find myself completely blown away from page one. Jonah, I don't think you've ever read a comic book that looked like this. No, this is probably one of the most unique comics I've ever read where a lot of new information is thrown in, but we're also getting little snippets of the puzzle pieces through omnipotent information given to the reader, but it's not explained who this information is given by, where this information comes from, what a lot of this means. It just has a lot of, the best way I can describe it is scientific data, like someone's writing a program and that program is being executed. Absolutely. And the data doesn't stop there. The front page of House of X number one and Powers of Ten number one have numeric code following the letters of Krakoa that bounce back and forth and seem to interplay somehow. I'm personally loving digging into the visuals of this. Kyle, we've spent so much time talking about the dregs of Marvel in the 70s, like the champions and Marvel villains team up. What was it like getting to talk about something that wasn't just exciting, but was unlike anything else on the stance? It was intriguing. It felt like a mystery. It felt like there was so much that needed to be discovered with this. And it felt like a complete change from where we've been. It was a change I needed, personally. And the more I compare their front pages, Humans of the Planet Earth, here's the thing, Charles. While you slept, the world changed. It's not a dream if it's real. They both end on proper nouns in the first sentence with the second sentence ending on a word italicized and one talks about sleeping, one talks about dreaming. I can't stop trying to crack this code. This is the most excited I've been about an X book, probably since Grant Morrison and Joss Whedon were on the titles. Dylan, this had to be shocking. It was, and that's the best thing about it. The past couple of years when it came to X-Men reboots, it seemed like they were relying so much on nostalgia from the 90s. And now with House of X and Powers of Ten, there's so much mystery and so much that you don't know. And that's what makes it exciting. The past couple of reboots with the nostalgia, it was stuff we already knew and had already seen. And I'll be honest, that uncanny cover that had that full team they released last year that kicked off this most recent uncanny relaunch, that's what brought me back. Seeing my team of X-Men brought me back, but honestly, it quickly lost me again. It really took the boldness of this to bring me truly back. Within five pages, I was taken. Whether it's pages one, four, and five, which are data-based, or it's that two-page spread, man, that two-page spread that no one can stop talking about. It opens up with what appear to be mutants trapped in pods in a black mass on Krakoa, and then this helmeted Xavier is standing there, and he says to me, my X-Men, in front of what we can only assume is Scott amongst other mutants, and I don't know, I'm just so fascinated because there's so much to Krakoa. Jonah, I know you don't know anything about this, but one of the characters that's on one of the covers, Vulcan, is from a second mission to Krakoa that was retconned in years later. So like, every layer of this has my brain going. But Jonah, what were your first thoughts when you saw the X-Men hatch out of these pods? So, when I first saw Charles and his stance and his design, I originally asked, is this Cassandra Nova? Because that's where my mind went originally, especially because this is influenced by Grant Morrison's new X-Men, and Cassandra Nova was the first villain we were introduced to. But it's Charles, and I'm just so fascinated and confused and puzzled and weirded out and don't know what's going on. They're, I guess mutants can be born, like they're looking like they're encased in Krakoa's amber and we're gonna have Jurassic Park of mutants, kind of. Charles is standing, he's not in his wheelchair, 
wheelchair. There's too much going on. And something you said in last episode is that there was a shift in what the priorities of the comic industry was about, focusing more on the artist as opposed to the writer. And I can say I can absolutely see why they would have done this or how this has been implemented because reading just these two issues, which are 48 pages, as opposed to reading one uncanny issue that's 22 pages, took me about the same time. I was able to read these so quickly because there's less dialogue and more to just digest reading visually by looking. And that actually mirrors a lot of changes in media in general. We want to see more focus on show and less focus on tell. And I think what we see here is so interesting. Everybody keeps being like, oh, are the X-Men hatching? Well, I remember that the giant size X-Men were trying to break the original X-Men out of Krakoan stasis. What if the X-Men crawled into this and this is them coming back out? What if Xavier crawled in first and came out first? I have so many questions. Dylan, when you saw creepy Xavier standing all flouncy with his like little fingers out ready to have some tea in this sexy little bodysuit. Damn, Xavier. Yeah, and like he's got a little area blurred out. What did you think as a longtime X-Men fan? Probably just like everyone was thinking, confusion and also enjoyment. Like you said, I was thinking about that first mission and of the giant size X-Men and having to break the former X-Men out of encasings. I was wondering if it was that, because I know everyone is starting to wonder something about clones. I really honestly was just thinking, what if the X-Men were just in stasis of some sorts? Because it seems like this is a little bit of a jump in time since Uncanny 22 ended. Yeah, we know that it's a bit about six months since Uncanny 22 ended thanks to one of the back matter pages. We're told that a year ago mutants kicked back on like normal but at a slightly more aggressive rate. They then told us that six months ago Charles Xavier began buying up the seventh largest pharmaceutical company in the world using his shell corporations to do so and that two months ago the X-Men declared a new nation state for themselves. So it's been about six months since the end of Uncanny. Now it's gonna seem like I'm pulling at straws but I even found something very interesting to question on pages four and five. The opening title page that shows House of X number one. If you take a look under the title House of X, it says the house that Xavier built. Sure, but then if you go to the data wording on the bottom right hand corner, it says the house of Xavier and the island of Krakoa. It's so interesting that they're trying to tell us that Xavier has built a new house on the island of Krakoa and that they're kind of equating these two things really closely. Kyle, if you stopped reading around around 281, you left things off in Genosha, and now you're coming back in, and all of a sudden there's all this crazy shit about Krakoa. What does the island of Krakoa and the house of Xavier mean to you this early on in the story? Because I've been reading the recent stuff, so Krakoa kind of has a little more meaning to me at this point, so that's colored my view of it, you know? I really, really do, because I actually, and again, not to get too spoilery, but one of my favorite characters like ever is son of Krakoa who's adorable and I love him so I'm kind of like yo son of Krakoa come hang out with me and baby brew because it's son of Krakoa and Krakoa becomes such a functional word in this conversation that I had to add it to my dictionary on Google Docs because I had to write it down every other line that next few pages Colossus picking a flower from Krakoa Storm carrying one through Westchester Nightcrawler planting one in the blue area of the moon Hisako armor planting one on Mars Mars 
which later comes up as one of the sinister breeding pits. Ridiculous, I don't even know how to describe what he looks like, animal-looking beast, evidently planting one in the Savage Land. Kitty and Lockheed relaxing in Washington, D.C., having just planted a Krakoa flower. The Cuckoos planting them two weeks ago. And now that leads us to the Jerusalem habitat. I do want to point out that in a lot of ways, all of this giant plants taking over the world thing reminds me a lot of Warren Ellis's mega-successful Trees, which was a incredibly brilliant creator-owned comic just a handful of years ago. You can check that out on Comixology. And there is a number of interesting parallels between the two of them, so I would find myself hard-pressed not to mention that to you guys. But giving us that shortcut, that showing us all those X-Men very quickly, and giving us a good selection. Jonah, I know there's a bunch of X-Men you recognize from this. Dylan, there's going to be some that you know from later years as well. What did you guys think about seeing this group of X-Men, some of whom are, you know, standard, some of whom are kind of like extra? I think it's pretty interesting that of the X-Men that they do show, four are from new X-Men being Kitty Pride, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Storm, Beast being one of the original, and two more recent ones being Armor, who I'm not very familiar with myself, but the Stepford Cuckoos, who I love. I'm so upset there's not all five of them, but we got two. But it's pretty interesting, and it's almost reminiscent of Giant Size X-Men number one, where it's that flash cut of Xavier collecting the new mutants for his team. But here, I think it's done better instead of having three or two pages dedicated to each person. It's just them doing what Xavier, what I'm assuming Xavier told them to do. Dylan, your thoughts? I love the ones that are chosen in these panels. I feel like it's some of the most important and leader-like, if that makes sense, characters. I know Armor and the Cuckoos are newer and may not be known by very many people, but Armor is one of the most potentially greatest younger characters that should definitely be leading a team already. And the Cuckoos with their incredible power, I think these panels are great because it's some very important mutants to the X-Men mythos. I completely agree. I think the Stepford Cuckoos are a group of mutants who manage to insert themselves to the core of what we love about the X-Men and whether or not Hisako or Armor, you know her from Astonishing X-Men or any of her subsequent appearances. I love that an Asian American mutant found their way into this, that it's not just that we look to Sunfire or Jubilee, but that we are seeing a new wave of Asian Americans coming into these comics. I look forward to seeing more of that diversity because John Hickman is someone who very much cares about diversity. All of these nameless, faceless ambassadors for the next few pages that meet the Cuckoos and Magneto, it actually really doesn't matter that we don't know who they are. It, they're really incidental to what they're explaining, which are, of course, the human drugs, human drug L, which extends human longevity, human drug I, which enhances human immunity, and human drug M, which helps mental states, as well as that mutants have the ability to now travel through Krakoan gateways from flower to Krakoan flower. They're able to develop habitats or mutant safe haven biomes, as well as we're given the notice of the cancerous, tumorous no place in Krakoa. I personally thought this was like two of the coolest pages I've ever seen in an X-Men comic in my life. (laughs) I loved it. And I think the human drugs have so much potential to fuck up the Marvel Universe on a scale like, like century punching Hyperion levels of could fuck up the universe. We're so used to X-Men being about big, over-the-top mutant drama, but this is incredibly human drama. The medications that can be synthesized from Krakoan flowers don't just change the face of the X-Men, they change the face of the larger Marvel Universe and the larger
larger picture of Marvel. And, you know, C.B. Sabolsky has actually said this will change the Marvel Universe forever. The things that take place in House of X and Powers of Ten will ultimately have a ripple effect. Where's your brain at, Kyle? That's like, I can't even imagine the ripple effect on these. I, I agree. It's all, jeez. I can see how much all these changes can affect everything. And while they sound really promising, it also leaves me kind of feeling uncomfortable, like there's something not quite right. I think the word that appeared the most throughout my notes was unsettling. Yes, that's the word. I need to take a pause, though. On the next page of this wonderful issue, page 14, we get what might be my favorite Jean Grey panel of the last 15 years. This is probably the best Jean Grey has looked since Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Her and her classic Marvel Girl costume symbolizes something unique. Jean Grey always symbolizes the Phoenix, rebirth, redemption, power, greatness. But this story is in terms of a much larger greatness. Cyclops has put in a costume reminiscent of his least dynamic. Wolverine is put into muted colors. Magneto is put into a costume that doesn't fit his world domination scope. Xavier is put in black as though to say he's barely there, he's part of the background. Jean is put into her classic costume to represent a time before she was all-powerful. Jean even explains to a young mutant, Fauna, that while only mutants can use the gateways, they can ask for permission to take a human through the gateways, but that Krakoa is very selective. This is a really interesting way to give us a lot of information very quickly, which, I don't know, is everybody here a humongous sage fan is it just me is everyone a huge sage fan i like sage i'm not familiar sage is the bomb shit i don't know enough about her well here's all you need to know she is always this fucking cool hickman managed to in one page capture the voice i love for sage in a way that i don't think anybody's captured the voice i love for cyclops in 10 years one of the reasons that she sounds as amazing is the fact that they put her with doug and those two can really feed off of each other I love that you and I both just call him Doug. For those who aren't familiar, this incredibly normal-looking mutant will be better known as Cypher for 30 years. Although it is important to note that he also has an element of the techno-organic virus, which is better known as part of Warlock's technarchy. So this is the Douglock Chronicles are quite an up-and-down adventure that runs through just about every title in the X-Books. It begins in New Mutants, it finds itself in the pages of X-Factor, Excalibur, X-Force. It ultimately brings itself back to the Uncanny X-Men during the Alan Davis M-Tech era. And then Warlock becomes kind of a, uh, well, they bring Warlock back out anytime they want to find a reason to have Bill Sienkiewicz come in and do a cover. So I do think that showing Warlock and Sage together was brilliant. Now, I think, Jonah, you would know Sage best from three of my favorite issues of New X-Men of all time. Kyle, have you ever read a single page of Sage before? No, I've never encountered Sage at all. Oh, wait. Yes, you have, because you read her in seven issues of Dark Phoenix Saga with us. I have. I was going to say he probably knows her, but doesn't. <laughs> uh-huh. Shh. Wait, it's a what? secret spoiler. Sage is technically there. She's actually in a panel. And she's, like, actually also the first X-Man, so she's always been there. Mind explosion. I do think, though, that probably the funniest panel in the whole book... Might be Logan being like, I'm covered in kids, snicked, which is just like, 
He looks so happy to be covered in kids, which is just like, they talk about how Krakoa gives hope, but I'm like, I didn't realize that Krakoa makes you want to open a daycare, right? Because like, Wolverine and his skewer kebab daycare would be terrible. But genuinely, that moment between Xavier, Logan, and Jean is my favorite moment in the entire book. I guess the fact that I am such a big Jean fanboy shines through every time I open my mouth. But I love that this is the one moment in the whole book you might truly believe the mutants aren't up to something. For this one page, I honestly believe Xavier is just trying to make a good home for Jean. For one page. It is immediately taken from me because the next sequence emotionally destroyed me. But for one page, I was happy. The next page gives us something I think is phenomenal, but I don't think we understand it yet. Other than the House of X and the House of M, which we are told are the House of Xavier and the House of Magneto, and specifically are two of the sections of the biome that have been sectioned off for different purposes. The Oracle, the Grove, the Cradle. I mean, I just kept expecting something to be called the Crash and then get, you know, retconned out. Little Cassandra Nova joke for everybody. Dylan, there was no way with this next five page scene that I could have done this episode without bringing you in for a moment. Do you want to tell us a a little bit about the appearance of one Miss Kurnima Shapandar. There was a character introduced named Karima Shapandar. It was X-Men Unlimited 27, I believe. It was during the Claremont Revolution. She was initially introduced as a side character to Neil Shara. Yes, she was a, a cop. And she later went on to... Is this spoilery if I tell this? I mean, it's kind of necessary to understanding the thing we're talking about. So I would go for it. Okay. Okay. Uh, she was later then reintroduced as a human that had been experimented on and made into a newer breed of sentinels called Omega Sentinels that would become active without their even knowing that they were sentinels and then they would attack, of course. But she then was later found by Xavier and Magneto on Genosha and she joined them in a short second run of Excalibur. But it was super great and not and not loving Excalibur is dumb. Exactly. <laughs> I love Wicked and I love Freak Show and I love Hub and I loved Book. So like I just thought all of the characters in that run were great. Then years later she was found by the X-Men and Beast was able to shut off her Sentinel program and she became a good Sentinel and worked with the X-Men for a while. Gosh, I am skipping all around. But then years later, a villain possessed her, I'm gonna be pretty vague about that, but the villain caused her to malfunction a lot and attack the X-Men, and Beast was able to, for the most part, remove most of her Sentinel programming, and we thought she had became a human, but now skip years later again to House of X, and we are seeing Karima show up again, but working with humans on creating a safe place for humans close to the sun. Yeah, I think what's happening is they're trying to create a, an anti-doomsday scenario, and it's called the Orcus Protocol. And it seems to be a number of supergroups, AIM, SHIELD, STRIKE, SWORD, Alpha Flight, HAMMER, ARMOR, and HYDRA, all working together to create alternative ways to stop extinction or doomsday-level threats. One of the ways in which they do that seems to be building giant sentinel satellites in space. And I'm a really big Karima fan. The runs that Dylan is talking about are... 
X-Men Revolution by Chris Claremont, an omnibus of which just came out and is excellent. I recommend picking it up. She then shows back up in Excalibur Volume 3, as mentioned by Dylan, which is the Genosian sword of mutant futures as a metaphor, not an actual Excalibur sword. So it's a 14-issue run that led into House of M. It is then turned over to New Excalibur, which stars my precious Captain Britain. Karima appeared in X-Men Legacy, and now, you know, I lost track of her for a little while when I stopped reading, so it was great to know that she was deprogrammed and saved, but here she is again, not being uh, such a good guy. Which, speaking of not such good guys, Toad, Mystique, and Sabretooth, I was so fucking thrown off by this sequence, because I just kept looking at this book as this big, like, widescreen, cerebral comic, and then I was confronted by classic members of different incarnations of the Brotherhood being like petty mutant thieves again and it just blew my fucking mind because this is the kind of shit that we've been reading in uncanny 95 or uncanny 110 but here it is in a way that i find interesting and new jonah was it interesting to see that for as much as things changed, so much of it stayed the same. Yes, and there's a reason why people rely on tropes and important cliches that help them get through to things. You know, this is, sequence was a really good way to show that it's not just hero mutants that are safe on Krakoa, it's every mutant. Sabretooth, Mystique, and Toad are going to be revealed to be working for, or well, in tangent with Magneto and Xavier. But having this sequence of them just, you know, being villains is really grounding to to this comic that's already so out there and already so different than anything we've seen before. Having this scene just be a classic, villains are doing something evil and the hero team shows up to stop them, is pretty nice. I agree. I super duper agree because we don't even just get any super team. We get the Fantastic Four. And when the Fantastic Four appear, it actually changes the X logo to a four logo in the indicator box. So this is literally telling us that characters that, by the way, John Hickman's run on Fantastic Four, if you have never read it, is literally one of the all-time greatest runs on these characters, bar none. It begins with Reed Richards' Fix Everything or Solve Everything. I forget the name of the arc, but beginning to end, his Reed Richards is genius. But we get the Fantastic Four showing up and then there's all this stuff about damage control. Now, damage control is something I know Kyle and I know from the 80s. Damage control would come in after a crossover and repair everything. But there's some weird stuff on the back matter page for damage control. It talks about how in recent past, both Stark and Richards have gone to great lengths to ensure their technology did not fall into the hands of entities like damage control, but the normal avenues of evasion, leaving control of their intellectual property to each other, failed when Richards was missing for a prolonged period of time and Stark was presumed dead. Rights to all current material are being contested. On the bottom, it is credited to Richard Stark Backup 10 and Richard Stark Backup 18. That is the level of effort that Hickman has gone to on these production pages to create a universe for us to dial into, all of which I think is brilliant. Kyle, one of the things that I know we've talked about is in later X-Men, it sometimes feels like the X-Men are in their own universe, hiding from the rest of the Marvel Universe. But here, we're confronted with the Fantastic Four and the severity of the extensions of their involvement with this Krakoan plan, the X-Men. How did you feel seeing the FF come in to crash this mutant party. It kind of helped me feel a little grounded. Up to this point, I was feeling pretty unsettled by a lot of stuff in the book. And seeing the Fantastic Four coming out and trying to deal with the Brotherhood like this, it made it feel like there was something similar that we've we've dealt with before. And it made it feel like maybe... 
the world isn't quite so different uh, now than where we were before. Maybe the only thing that's changed is the X-Men. Yeah. And it is quite a different X-Men. And number one, love Hickman's interpretation of Magneto. His Magneto is like fucking phenomenal. But more than that, this sequence with Magneto is so interesting. Because it talked about this hieroglyphic language system that Hickman is utilizing throughout this series. In fact, it turns out Krakoa created this language at the request of the mutants who found the labyrinthine design of the Krakoan gateways confusing. The humans kind of mock the language as gibberish, and Magneto was like, no, we're creating culture. And by no means make any mistake, that is exactly what Charles Xavier is seeking to do. He is creating mutant culture. That in a lot of ways does parallel queer culture for me, that it's its own kind of language and it's something that is a bit exclusionary of straight people by virtue of being protected and private. No gay person is looking to exclude a straight person but in order to share in queer culture and be queer you need to be queer and that's kind of what they're saying about mutant language which ties into the whole idea that no humans are welcome on Krakoa. I would love to get a vote on that. Let's kind of go around the room here. Jonah what did you think about no humans are permitted on Krakoa? While it's the very extreme of approach it makes sense that this is what the mutants want you know they're constantly hunted they're berated they're looked down upon they're dismissed they're all these different negative aspects that are caused by humans homo sapiens and homo superior doesn't want to deal with that anymore so i understand when they're where they're coming from by saying look we just want to have a safe haven for ourselves we're not doing anything bad but you can't come you can't come to this party and as I said, it's the extreme approach, but I would almost have to agree with them. Dylan, what do you think about this? I have the same thoughts that you did, except I'm a little confused because that kind of seems a little bit off from what Xavier's dream has always been. So that that part to me makes me go with the, uh, the word unsettling because it seems a little bit off for Charles. Throughout the years, even in the most dire times, Charles always seemed like he would be willing and wanting to work with humans. So that one was a little confusing to me. It actually does raise a number of questions for me. In fact, the exclusion of humans is such an important element of this story that Moira's hyper-inclusion in the first issue of Powers of Ten blew my mind. But we're going to get to that. Kyle, what were your thoughts on a human-free Krakoa? I have to agree with Dylan. It didn't fit with the dream of Xavier that we've known about for so long. I was also confused because this idea of separating the mutants from the humans, it sounded very similar to when they created Utopia. Uncanny X-Men under Matt Fraction and Kieran Gillen was Nation X and Utopia, in which the X-Men established their own island nation off the coast of California. Yes, that's it. The crux of this issue comes down to what I found to be one of the two most unsettling sequences. There's the Scott sequence and there's the Magneto sequence. And both of them are equally unsettling, but the Scott one hit me in a very different way. When the Fantastic Four get Sabretooth all chained up, Cyclops appears and is like, okay, well, thanks for getting our man. We're going to take him home now. 
Thanks for getting our loose dog, basically, is what it sounded yeah, like. Yeah, pretty much. And the Fantastic Four are like, oh no, but we have to take him to prison. And Scott Summers all but says, do you remember when you guys put me in prison? It's this really dark, mm, no, 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 amnesty requires a wide berth. And Reed is like, you can't be serious. He just broke a bunch of laws. And every bit of Scott's response is chilling. When he says, why don't you keep it? We'll deal with it some other time, some other way. In that very hands-off approach is so fucking crazy. And then when Scott says, my family has spent our entire lives being hunted and hated. The world has told me that I was less when I knew I was more. Did you honestly think we were going to sit around forever and just take it? And the look of guilt on Sue Storm's face, like she hasn't done enough for mutants this entire time, when her son is a mutant, is so powerful. So that when Scott one moment later says, basically tell Franklin that he should come live with us because you're limited. I was like, yo, he just threatened to take the most powerful person in the Marvel Universe's child, the other most powerful person in the Marvel Universe away. Uh, what? And I just, I, I found this whole sequence super chilling. And it, of course, leads us into the Omega mutant discussion. So when I saw, first saw this, the Omega level discussion and this part of the data that we're being shown, I find it pretty fascinating and interesting that there is a distinction of mutants who are at the highest caliber of their power type and what they're considered and their capabilities and they're considered Krakoa's greatest resource. And taking a look at the list of who's there, I don't see many surprises. I think the one that's most shocking to me is Bobby Drake, Iceman. That is, I guess, the weirdest to me. Where you're at, that is questionable, but where he's at now, he is Storm, but for ice. Well, okay. That's pretty cool. But we have pretty interesting names within the Marvel Universe. We have Proteus. We have Legion. We have Quentin Quire, who's a very, very popular and well-known character at this point. Another one on there is Storm. A lot of people on this list are psychics, whether it be reality warping powers of three different kinds or telepaths. There are very few that don't have a form of a psychic power, and I find it so interesting that we're given these details of who the Omega Mutants are and where their affiliations lie. And the only real outlier here is Franklin Richards, who by this definition, is considered human. Well, yeah, because he's a baby. He's like 10. Once again, got a cap written this up that they include Jamie as Monarch makes my heart sore. I also love that he's Monarch because Betsy's symbol is the butterfly and his symbol name being Monarch, like Monarch Butterfly. I really like that comparison. The Braddock family has such a rich history with their otherworldly and DNA. I gotta ask, I think probably one of the only people in the world other than myself who would know every name on this list dylan scott's statement about you know franklin has a home with us and then this list there's a lot of heaviness to unpack about the order this was presented what were your thoughts my thoughts were i'm glad that they put this list in here because if this is going to be a jumping on point for some people they may not understand that mr fantastic and invisible woman's son is a mutant so there's that aspect of it Another aspect of it is I am a huge Storm fan, and for years, people always argue about whether or not Storm is an Omega-level mutant. It's mainly just because of inconsistent writing over the past couple of years, because one writer would say that she is one, another writer would say that she has the potential to be one, 
So I'm glad this list finally will stop that argument with fans. I also really, 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 really need to talk about the fact that they take shots at my precious maker. Okay, they're not exactly taking shots at Forge, but it's close enough to taking shots at Forge that I'm not crazy about it. Okay, no, it's just, I do appreciate the definition of Omega level mutant being whittled down. The page goes on to state that a mutant whose dominant power is deemed to register or reach an undefinable upper limit and then they say, for example, both Magneto and Forge are the most powerful mutants of their power types on the planet Earth, magnetism and technopathy, respectively. But what makes Magneto and not Forge an Omega level mutant is the upper limit of Forge's measurable powers could be hypothetically surpassed. What? And then Jean's an Omega level telepath and not Omega level telekine. And I'm like, what? But for my money, having this all clearly defined really works for me. Kyle, there's a bunch of shocks one right after another. It's Scott making that veiled threat at... Franklin Richards. There's this list of Omega level mutants. And then there is, of course, the ending when Magneto was like, LOL, your religion is silly, so we're replacing it. This is three punch you in the dicks in a row. How's your dick? <laughs> um, it, it, it feels punched. <laughs> I love that reply. And I'm going to build a theme song around it. But tell me, you had, like, seriously, three shocking segments in a row. It's that section where Scott's kind of like, mm, come in for your baby. And then he's like, well, and then they're like, here's a list of everybody who's so powerful it's ridiculous. And that's followed by Magneto saying, we're your gods now. That is overwhelming. That changes the X-Men on a profound level. What was your reaction to this, like, six pages that forever transformed the X-Men franchise? Again, I'm unsettled. This is not how I expected the X-Men to act towards people. I was not expecting them to be elevating themselves above humans to this degree. This is not something that I expected to be coming from people working with Charles. I really agree, and I love the shock and the confrontation of it. Jonah, you've been reading the X-Men with me for a year now, and you have seen the ups and downs of these guys. You've seen the Uncanny Era, you've read some new X-Men. This was probably, for my money, the most shocking thing I've ever read in the X-Men franchise. How did you feel about it? You know, I think, well, this is still very early on in this story. I think from just this shock, I would say the shock within Grant Morrison's new X-Men probably hit a little harder, because I think that was maybe a parallel to this of what it was the bigger shock of what's to come and what's happening. But this, I guess, feel that felt like a very isolated, very specific shock. This is a much more worldly shock where this isn't just Magneto saying we're the gods now. This is Magneto saying this through Charles's will, where this is probably what Charles is saying now. It's not just Magneto saying it, which is what the world and all these different nations are used to Magneto saying that he's going to be the king and blah, 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 blah. But having it come from, as we talked about earlier, the person who was the biggest proponent to mutant and human relations basically say it is pretty unsettling. I agree. It's unsettling in a way that needs to be explored. Dylan, you've read as much X-Men as I have. This had to be a contradiction of everything the X-Men stand for, yet for me, it felt like a logical progression of everything we've seen over the course of the last 60 years. How about you? Like you just said, it is 
different for the X-Men. This is not the, the normal path that they take, like Kyle mentioned. But like mutants evolving all the time, they need to evolve their stance. So I don't know if this says something about me, but I kind of always root for the bad guys. So this at the end was pretty amazing. The mutants are finally sick of humans hating on them, and they are just going to be the gods that they are. And I just think that's pretty awesome. You know, I don't know that I would say that I necessarily root for the bad guys, but yeah, I root for the guys that have been held down, finally getting their own ground and their own footing. And I feel like that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the beginning of a great new age of X-Men. This really is different than any other X-Book I've ever read before. And that is why we're going to be spending every Thursday taking a look at this unreal change in the X-Men's dynamic here on Uncanny X's for Podcast Powerhouse. I want to thank the team for coming coming out and talking about these unbelievable books with me. Dylan, until you grace the House of X again, where can everybody find you online? Everyone can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is D-Y-L-A-N. And if you would like to talk about everything X in my Facebook group that had the name first, you can find me at House of X on Facebook. Amazing. Kyle, where can everybody follow your adorable self? You can... You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Incredible. Hey, Jonah, what about you? Where can everybody see you banth about? Not in Jerusalem. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Jonah.Rabino and at Jonah Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me here on Cage Club over on HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, talking Marvel Cinematic Universe, X-Men, Fox Films, Alien, all sorts of amazing stuff with my husband, Kevo. You can check me out on Now and Again with Chris Podcasts featuring the dulcet tones of the incredible Jonah from time to time where we talk about pop music. Don't forget to check out my music over on Facebook at facebook.com slash action duo or my hyper inclusive comic book over at kidriotcomics.com you can follow along my adventures on Instagram at Nico Action that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and until next time I have a new word for the lexicon of man Krakoa and in the future when you speak it make sure you do so softly and with proper deference for we will be listening <laughs>